So your brain is straight up weird. Whether you're listening to this while you're driving, maybe you're laying in bed, or maybe you're doing everything you can to get to the radio so you can turn it off immediately so you don't have to listen to me talking, your brain is thinking about what to focus on and choosing then what to do about it. Even before you're really thinking about it or it's come to your conscious attention that you are focusing on something, your brain is doing this pre-attentive process where it's kind of selecting what it needs to focus on before it chooses what to focus on, and we can't control that. So even if you decide that you need to think about something for a little bit, your brain has already decided that you need to think about thinking about thinking about something before you think about it. It's a little bit confusing. And I think, therefore, I am. Louis Colorotolo. Eh, that sounded better in my head. Either way, my name is Louis Colorotolo, and I'm a University of Guelph food science PhD student right now trying my best to make it through graduate school. And along the way, I like to have conversations with other graduate students who are currently in grad school or recently graduated who have a lot to say about what they study, because it's not always the experts that you have to hear these things from. As graduate students, we have a lot to say and, oh god, don't get us started talking. And whether you like it or not, your brain is constantly thinking. And you can't really control that, but one thing you can do is listen to this episode where we talk with Erica Correll, who knows a lot about the thinking process and the thinking before thinking happens, and the thinking about thinking before thinking happens. She's going to kind of untangle this mystery of the pre-attentive process of thinking and let us know how this kind of affects our lives and how the brain is kind of wired all together to kind of shoot these signals around and really ultimately create the final thoughts that we have. So whether you're thinking about turning off this radio or pausing this podcast, keep in mind that we are graduate students and we really don't know everything and we're bound to make a mistake or two, but that's okay because you're listening to another episode of We Know Some Stuff. Hi Erica, how you doing today? I'm good, how are you doing? I am quite well myself. Can you do us a favor and walk us through your educational history? Sure. Um, So I did my undergraduate uh, work at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts, which is a small little town in Western Massachusetts. I studied neuroscience. I went back home to the Midwest and uh, did a research assistantship uh, at the University of Cincinnati in a neurotrauma lab, and now I'm a second-year PhD student in neuroscience and behavior at UMass Amherst. Okay, right off the bat, I'm not going to remember any of that. I've literally just filtered out (laughs) everything that you just said, and I am moving on with my life. And that's actually kind of today's topic, isn't it? Absolutely. So you study... Uh, well, you study neuroscience, right? But you also study a facet of neuroscience, which is uh, memory. Yeah, in a way. Um, I study particularly um, what happens almost before we make those memories. Um, so I study a, a what's called a pre-attentive process, but it's so it's before we're even aware of the information that we're taking in. Um, and I study how we decide to what information to take in, what information's important, um, what we need to focus on. And you were totally right. There were things that you didn't need to focus on, on what I said. 
And I mean it as no insult. I really do. But I don't have the ability to retain all of this stuff. So you said that this is a pre-attentive memory. What does that really mean? How do you, how do you, uh, you know, sense things before you sense them? I don't, I don't understand. Definitely. Yeah. So it's not a process that, like I said, we're aware of. It's something that our brain does to allow us to um, respond to our environments in the right way. So when I'm, I'm talking to you right now, right? But I'm also sitting on my couch and my dog's right next to me and uh, maybe he starts barking, right? Well, I, don't, I still don't want to pay attention to him. I want to pay attention to you. But as that noise is hitting my ears, my brain is saying, okay, make that noise maybe not as loud or not as important. So we're not going to listen to as much of it as much as I would listen to you. Oh, okay. So your your brain is kind of picking what's the most important thing, what you're paying focus to, and everything else kind of goes to the side. Right. Okay, so the, our brain does this without us telling it to do it. Yeah, um, and a, a very popular um, example is what's called the uh, cocktail party, and I think it might be uh, referred to as a problem, but I think it's uh, just an interesting scenario. So in a cocktail party, like you, you're going to be uh, interacting with plenty of people, but... And even if you are having a conversation and filtering out the other conversations that are on around you, you're still going to be able to pick, pick out important information in your environment. For example, if somebody from across the room says your name, well, your name is more important than another conversation that has nothing to do with you. Oh, interesting. So yeah, at a cocktail party, there's a lot of stimuli. You have all these people having conversations, everyone's wearing clothing, you can see all this stuff, you might be eating something, you're tasting things. So it's almost sensory overload to a degree. And our brain is trying to pick out what's important. 100%. That's absolutely it. And you can under you can imagine that if you can't filter out certain things that it gets Pretty overwhelming. I can only imagine there are so many things happening at one time. I'm looking in my room right now where I'm recording this audio, and I have light. I know that there are cars driving on the road behind me. I'm looking at the audio levels of this. I'm rocking on a chair slightly. There's colors, there's smells, there's textures. But right now, I'm focused on our conversation. Right. And I, if, for example, you couldn't filter out a certain amount of light or a certain amount of noise that you're paying attention to or the the cars in your background that could that could result in things that make it that much harder to pay attention to what you want to all right so why does the brain do this i understand that it's helpful but what's the underlying reason so for the most part it's so we can respond appropriately uh to situations. So um, if you're talking to me, I want to talk back or depending on what you're saying, maybe I don't want to talk back. So it, it allows us to orient ourselves to our world and and move through it. Yeah, I guess appropriately. Okay, right. Because as human beings, we have a lot going on and we, we kind of have a mission, what we set our mind to do. Um, and we don't want to get too distracted by everything else. 
Yeah. For for example, if uh, if you were seeing something or hearing something that wasn't there, you would potentially pay attention to it instead of something that's more important. And, you know, maybe that causes you danger in that situation. Maybe hopefully it wouldn't. OK, so you are bringing up a beautiful segue into our, our next topic that we're going to talk about. Uh, paying attention to things that are not there. So you work uh, a lot with this type of memory when it comes to people with different psychiatric disorders. Am I correct? Yes. Yeah. When it comes to uh, diseases where this sensory filtering and sensory gating um, process isn't working properly. All right. So could you list a few various diseases, not just the ones that you work with? Or my bad, disorders. They're not diseases, are they? So that's an interesting topic in and of itself, um, the word disease versus disorder. Um, I Disease might implicate some kind of uh, more biological mechanism versus an environmental one. Um, but I think that tends to be on the, uh, that tends to be on, on the person who's uh, reading it. So I think they're pretty interchangeable in my book. <laughs> Fair. Okay. I have a lot less anxiety about saying the wrong thing now. <laughs> All right. So with that being said, can, can you list a few of these uh, disorders or diseases that um, affect this sort of uh, gating process, as you called it? Certainly. Yeah. So the big one, uh, the big one that has this deficit um, is schizophrenia, um, where you where patients can um, experience both auditory and or visual hallucinations and other um, symptoms. There, it's a present in Tourette syndrome, in autism, where there's almost an opposite effect, um, where there's too much filtering out of information. Uh, it's also present in OCD and ADHD. Oh, wow, this is fascinating. I have never really thought of autism like that. It's it's filtering out too much information, which um, I know that a lot of people describe autism as not picking up on a lot of social cues. Is it, and I'm just making wild leaps and guess right here, is it because they're filtering out a lot of these social cues? That is an incredible interesting suggestion. Um, yeah, it's widely unknown right now. Um, and I've spoken with actual patients uh, or people who have autism, and they they find that when I've explained this over-filtering mechanism that it makes total sense to them. I'm not sure why. I'm not sure you know exactly what what they feel they're not paying attention to, what they feel they're filtering out more. Um, but there's that's definitely a, a possibility, is that they're filtering out more social cues than, than necessary. Super interesting stuff. One, I potentially made a life-changing discovery. Two, if I got it incredibly ridiculously wrong, I'm sorry, and I apologize to everyone who's listening. <laughs> <laughs> so you study more specifically schizophrenia, which I, you know, I think of schizophrenia, I think of a lot of horror movies like to play up schizophrenia and a lot of uh, movies that are about sort of um, psychiatric institutions like uh, One Who Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, movies like that. They play up schizophrenia big time. Um, could you give us just a, a nice thorough description 
of uh, schizophrenia? Sure. So schizophrenia is uh, it's such a, a wide uh, disorder. And I say that to mean that there's a large spectrum of how it how it manifests. So somebody could be schizophrenic and have visual hallucinations. They might not have any hallucinations. Somebody could have auditory hallucinations. Um, there's a lot of depression that's involved and um, spe specific types of schizophrenia involve paranoid um, ideations like you're in danger or somebody is going to cause danger to you or harm to you. So they're and they're separated by negative and positive symptoms, which <laughs> if I were to explain, they honestly don't make a lot of sense. Um, but the negative symptoms tend to be your depression and your positive symptoms tend to be your hallucinations. Um, now, I will say I will hit on the point that you brought up that, yes, there are many films and TV shows that like to play up this diagnosis of schizophrenia. And I'll just reiterate that there's been many studies that show that these patients are more susceptible to um, violence than being perpetrators of violence. Interesting. Well, that is like really good to know, kind of clear the stigma of this stuff. People with schizophrenia are more likely to be victims than, um, gosh, whatever the opposite of the word victim is. <laughs> Perpetrators, yeah. Perpetrator. There you go. You already <laughs> said it. I should have known. So I don't I don't want to spend too much time on this, but you said hallucinations is a positive <laughs> aspect. Yeah, it's interesting, the terminology that gets used for for psychiatric symptoms. And it's it's one of the reasons that we really need to bridge the gap between people who do this type of research and the populations it serves, the communities they serve, because I'm not sure that every schizophrenic would say that a hallucination is a positive symptom. Yeah, and I can imagine even me not having diagnosed schizophrenia, I would feel that hallucinations are not a positive symptom. Um, but sometimes I guess, you know, terminology gets defined way back when, and uh, we kind of stick with it. Certainly. Okay, so with this schizophrenia, you, you, you study schizophrenia, and now we're talking about the gating, the, 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 the filtering out of information. Where do these two come together? Right. So in schizophrenia and a lot of the other diseases um, that I mentioned earlier, um, they have um, deficits or um, differences in their functions. So they're different than what a normal or what I like to call neurotypical person would experience. Um, specifically for schizophrenia, they can't filter out as much as they need to. So it's hard to focus on things that are important in their environment. And this is seen across species. There's different behavioral tests that you can do to measure this gating um, in the brain. And uh, yeah, like I said, these, these deficits that are seen in, this, in gating are um, across species when looking at disease models. Oh, interesting. So I know that when they do diagnostic tests, like if you go to see 
um, you know, a doctor to see if you have something like ADHD or ADD, mm-hmm. they'll do a lot of um, sort of like games sort of tests. Mm-hmm. Where, yeah, like where you have to, um, you know, they give you a list of things like red coat, blue pants, yellow watch, and you have to be able to associate them back and forth. Um, This is, I'm assuming, a way to test your ability to gate. Yeah, so there are different different types of tests that are um, used, obviously, for different species that you can ask a human um, questions that you can't ask of a mouse. But one test um, that we use is one that's um, using a startle response. So it's an innate response. And you do, so that means that you don't have to train on it. There's no period where uh, you have to sit down and associate red with this word or blue with this word. Um, it's just you're presented with a sound and you jump because it's startling, right? So if you hear a loud sound, you're gonna jump. However, if I played a softer sound before I played the, the loud sound, you wouldn't jump as much at the loud sound. But if you had schizophrenia, you would jump just as much when I, even if I gave you a softer sound, you would startle just as much it's very interesting. And what's really cool about that is that it happens across species. It happens in a mouse and it happens in a human. Oh, wow. Or, uh, what about with the cats when they see a cucumber? You ever see that You're on the internet yeah. with the cats? They, they freak out. <laughs> yeah. Is that, that is that something like this innate response? <laughs> it definitely is an innate response. That's for sure. I think that one has more evolutionary links, but it is definitely innate. I'm sure there's something that you can show a cat beforehand to maybe make them startle less at the cucumber. <laughs> okay, you're paving the way for for making cats less startled, and, and thank <laughs> right. you for doing that kind of science for us. <laughs> the cats appreciate it. The cats appreciate it, and if you win over the cats, you've won over the internet, so we're good. Exactly. <laughs> All right, so you are able to measure the ability to sort of filter out things through using this type of test. Um, could could you help me understand a little bit better? I don't necessarily see how uh, someone would kind of like filter out if they had schizophrenia, so how someone would like uh, not be able to filter out, which would cause them to get just as scared at a small and a large noise. I'm just like, I'm missing the connection. When we're presented with a large sound, we will jump. That's innate. We're, we, it scares us. It's uh, un, unexpected. But when we're presented with a sound for that, and not a loud sound, a, a lower level sound, it allows us to attend or allows us to um, allows us to get ready for something else. It's a it it makes us think, oh, there might be loud noises coming from there. And when a louder noise comes from there, then we expect it. So we're not going to be as shocked. However, if, if you have schizophrenia, you're going to be just as shocked at that loud noise because uh, because the smaller noise that was supposed to orient you to noise in general wasn't enough it wasn't important enough to help you not 
freak out. I hope that helped. <laughs> that did help. You you really you nailed it. Uh, so uh, let me try to explain this in, in a different way and tell me if I'm wrong. Sure. Right now, I am currently in a cutthroat, uh, guerrilla warfare style uh, nerf war with my roommate. Uh-huh. Um, and it's it's really, it's honestly become quite brutal over the past few weeks. I believe it. But if I, yeah, so, so if I hear footsteps, like if I can hear his footsteps coming down the stairs, I know what his footsteps sound like compared to another roommate. Mm-hmm. Um, I can sort of prepare myself that he's going to have the Nerf gun so I can almost like uh, react a little bit faster because... I I won't be scared by that first sound. I'm kind of prepped to react. Is that along the lines of what we're talking about? Absolutely. Oh, so cool. So you study people with schizophrenia. They can't necessarily distinguish uh, their, their reactions between the soft and the loud. Now, what good does any of this do? Why do you bother? So that's a great question. Yeah, why why do we want to know? I mean, obviously, we know that, yeah, they startle just as much. Well, cool. What's important is that we can take that information and try to figure out what mechanisms in the brain, what cells in the brain are determining that function, are driving that function. And if we find that out, then we are able to create pharmaceuticals or other therapies that might help rescue this function and allow people with schizophrenia or other disorders to live their live higher qualities of life if they're able to attend to things they need to. Oh, wow. That is super cool. You're kind of on the front lines of treating a, a disorder that for a long, long, long time really hasn't gotten as much attention as it deserves. Definitely. And I don't think people realize how many uh, how many people it affects. Schizophrenia alone affects 1% of people worldwide, and that doesn't seem like a lot. But when you factor in all the other disorders that have the same symptom and all the other people that uh, are implicated, yeah, this, this is a, a huge area that could help. One percent is still like a ridiculously large amount of people, though. I'm honestly shocked that it's one percent of the population. So if you know 100 people, there's a good chance that one of them has a schizophrenia. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, All right. So let me clarify one thing. This inability to uh, sort of distinguish between the the loud and the quiet and sort of like prepping your brain in order to have this reaction that's not the only thing about schizophrenia so if you you developed a drug for this one function that wouldn't completely cure you of schizophrenia would it right yes it wouldn't it might allow you to focus on things better um, in your environment respond to um, several types of stimuli better. It, like we were talking about earlier, it could be visual. This, uh, this startle response that I've been talking about is just auditory too. So this is, we're only thinking about auditory filtering here, um, and not taking into account the other, all the other information that we're always taking in. So yeah, it's definitely not the entire picture. Oh, that is, Super interesting stuff. So you are you're figuring out a puzzle piece in this, and I know the brain is st- 
stupid complicated. So you're you're just trying to kind of figure out where in the brain that it's happening and how, um, well, what do you do after you see, okay, it happens here in the brain, what do you do with that information? Right. So actually, the puzzle piece analogy is wonderful. I would, I'm going to expand on that a little bit. If you think about the area that I'm looking at as a puzzle piece, the area that that governs this process of filtering, well, then you can think of the brain as a billion piece puzzle. And I'm trying to figure out what pieces my piece of the brain connects to and how it connects. How does it fit in? Wow. All right. I love this analogy. You are trying to find just not only the piece, you're trying to identify the piece, but then you're trying to identify the connections that it makes. Because um, I know that the brain's all this interconnected web of neurons and weird cells and little electricity sparks like they show on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so when something happens in the brain, it kind of travels, more or less. Right. And it will in, and so when, when that, when that uh, signal travels, it'll influence the function of whatever region it travels to. So I could look at the function of a certain region, but that function might change if I, if I stimulate a different one that connects to it. Okay. So in this neuro typical brain, it's potential that these same uh, connections don't happen and compared to someone with a a brain that is not neurotypical or, you know, aka a schizophrenic brain. Right. Yeah. So there's a a million different possibilities of what could be happening, what what can be different between a neurotypical brain and and a brain that experiences a disorder like schizophrenia. It could be a lack of connections. It could be inefficient signaling from connections that are supposed to be there. It, um, yeah, it's there's so many possibilities, and that's what makes it so difficult to study, but so fascinating as well. Honestly, whenever someone talks about the brain, because I've interviewed a number of neurologists, it it seems like the honest guy, the most complicated thing in the world, and we all have them, and we're trying to use our brains to figure out the brain, which yeah. just is too much for me. <laughs> you can't get too far down that wormhole. You just, yeah, it's it's hard. It's it's tough to wrap your mind around. It's how can we wrap our mind around thinking about the mind? <laughs> Oh my god, you're sending me through loops right now, so I'm going to just casually change the topic and move on. Alright, so you study this, but you don't use humans to study it. You mentioned earlier that there are ways to test other species, because you said that this is a response that could be done in a whole bunch of different species. So what do you specifically do, and how do you specifically do it? Right, yeah, so I study mice. Uh, mice also have this startle response, and we can manipulate it. Um, we also, what's also uh, really great about mice is that we can create models of uh, disorders, and specifically models of symptoms in disorders that we're interested in. So it's hard to fully encompass a disorder like we talked about earlier. I mean, schizophrenia includes so many symptoms and they're different from individual to individual. So it's important that we're able to look specifically at one part 
like one symptom of a disease and mice give us that ability. And now is this just because mice are simpler than humans or is there a special reason that mice are better? Yeah, it's pretty much that mice are mice are simpler. We understand their um, their genome and we can manipulate it to look at specific populations of cells. And we can do more invasive um, and more informational studies than we can on a human. Yes, of course, right? Because you have to, uh, sometimes you have to pry a little bit to get the information out of uh, a mouse that we just could not do ethically to a human. Right. All right. So what specifically then are you testing? Are you just testing the scare response? Do you go around like wearing Halloween masks and scaring (laughs) mice? Is that your job? Oh, that would be fun. And they probably would still. Know. <laughs> You're um, cruel. <laughs> I know. I'm just, I'm the worst. Um, but, and they probably would. Mice are skittish on their own. But um, no, we, we do the same, um, same test that's done in humans. Uh, we present them with a sound, uh, a startling one and a non startling one, and are able to measure the difference in their. Um, startle response because they're in a box and on a grid that measures the pressure that they put on the ground. So when they startle, they jump. So there's less pressure. And when if they don't jump, there's more pressure. So we measure that as a as a difference in startle. Oh, that is such a unique way of uh, doing it. I would have assumed if we didn't have this conversation, you would have just like checked their heart rate or something. Right. Yeah, it's it's. It's incredibly clever, and I'm always uh, surprised and um, amazed by the cleverness of both biology and scientists to get at the biology. Yeah, you have to admit that they are doing some wacky things sometimes to get some information. Oh, yeah. I I mean, there's a study about tickling rats. (laughs) They are ticklish. Oh, no. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Could you imagine someone being like, okay, I need funding for this project, and they say, okay, well, what's your project about? Tickling rats. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do they experience, do they do they laugh? Do they experience the same kind of sensation as, as humans do when we're tickled? That seems like they do, at least in somewhat. <laughs> this is like a big question. Do rats laugh? Oh boy, they, we are getting a little bit too deep. Yeah, it is a little sidetracked, but they, you know, I'll give you the answer. They do. <laughs> They do. Oh, I feel so much better. <laughs> Rats can laugh. What a, what an interesting turn this conversation has taken. But uh, to, to get back to it, you know, we're, we're going to filter out some things right now. We're mm-hmm. going to get back onto our main focus. Um, you measure these responses in the mice, and you're just trying to study sort of the, the mapping of the reaction. Is there anything else you do on top of that? Or you're just trying to figure out what's happening? You're, are you at the the basis of all of this. So I study cells that when they connect to other cells, they tell them to not propagate a signal. Okay, so it's sort of like a a stop, a gate. That's that's what we're talking about, gating. Exactly, yeah. Okay. So we call this inhibition um, or inhibitory signaling. So I'm interested in how neurons that do that, how... what role do they play in this process? And are is that role different in states of disease or disorder? Oh, interesting. So you're trying to find out 
like the the talk between the cells right when how where the stop of that propagated signal is kind of chopping it off and saying okay we are done with this signal exactly okay so uh, through studying all of this you notice that there's a difference between the mice with the disorders and the mice that are neurotypical um was this something that people already knew or are you finding this out for the first time? So it's something that we knew, but we didn't know exactly what cell types were involved. Um, so we knew okay. that we knew that if in states of disease that this filtering process was impaired, but and there were there were incredible investigations into what cell types might have been um, driving that. But with the advent of new technologies that get at our questions better, we've, like I said, kind of been thrown back to the drawing board. So yeah, we are almost discovering it all from scratch. Oh, wow, that is fascinating stuff. And from what it sounds like, incredibly important stuff to move forward with bettering the lives uh, of people that are affected by these disorders. 100%. Oh, well, that is fascinating. So one, thank you so much for doing the science that you do. It, it, it really seems like you're on the pathway to make a difference in a lot of people's lives. So thank you. To end things here, could you kind of give us a moral of the story? What's the take home message from our conversation today? That's a wonderful question. Um, so I think the, I guess the take home message that I would like to send is that this research, as you said, is incredibly important um, and can improve the lives of, of countless people. And I think it's important not only to uh, understand this research, but to get those communities involved and to uh, understand the holistic um, experience of the communities that are that we're researching when we're researching them, because that's what informs our questions the most. Okay, well, I, one, was deeply affected by this conversation alone. I learned so much more about these uh, neuro-non-typical uh, disorders than I had ever before. Um, so, one, you've you've changed my perspective, so I can go forward in my life and, um, and maybe behave a little bit differently now that I know that. So, awesome. Oh, that's fantastic to hear. Okay, so I, I want to thank you a final time uh, for joining us for a little chat today. It was incredibly informative. So, thank you so much. Thank you again. Now that we've finished our conversation with Erica, what are you thinking about? Are you thinking about the process before you start thinking, or what factors that you're trying to focus in on? I know that I'm thinking about saying what I have to say without reading a script and also checking the audio levels at the same time. Whether you were focusing on actually listening to this, or if your mind was just wandering, Erica gave us some really interesting information about how our brain has this process that happens before we think, and what that means for a number of things like potential medicines for people with psychiatric disorders. So whether you filter out this entire episode from your memory and refuse to think about it ever again, keep in mind that we are graduate students. We don't know everything, which is why we always like to include a fact check at the end of our episodes. 
Now for this particular episode, we didn't find anything that needed to be directly corrected, which is good for us because we knew more than we thought we knew, but also kind of leaves a cliffhanger opportunity that one day we might figure out that we said a whole bunch of things wrong. And that's really the scientific process right there, is that, you know, we might have thought we were right at this time, but in the future, it might be wrong. So we will go back, we will correct, verify and come up with a new conclusion and that is the beauty of science now we may not have said anything directly incorrectly but there is a little bit of proof that we don't know everything so here's a quick clip of erica using the world's greatest source of knowledge just to verify the statistic of the population of people who were schizophrenic internationally. Because when it comes to throwing around numbers, we like to be a little bit more accurate. Let me make sure that's so, right. I apologize. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, go ahead, Google it. You're good. I'm pretty sure it's 1% worldwide, yeah. It might yeah. be. I imagine, of course, uh, regionally. It, it might actually be U.S., but I would, that's even, like, more um yeah that's incredible. even more crazy yeah it is one percent internationally yes so worldwide so there you have it proof that we don't know everything and further proof that if you have to google something while i'm recording an episode with you i'll probably include it in the end thank you for listening to another episode of we know some stuff again